Uh, we are very fortunate. I, I consider it a great privilege to introduce to you all Scott Beebe. Scott is a member here. He and his family, uh, Ashley and the kids, uh, attend here at Live Oak. And Scott is, if you all don't know, um, a really passionate guy. <clears throat> and he also happens to be an excellent preacher. And uh, Scott's going to come and bring the word today about the word as we're in the middle of our um, Frequently Asked Questions series. Before we do that, before Scott comes out to share with us, why don't you all stand up, find someone you don't know, shake their hand, make sure everybody feels welcome into the worship service this morning. All right, let's go ahead and have a seat. By the way, one more reminder up here, there are Bibles. Michael mentioned it earlier. If you don't have one, I'd really encourage you to come get one. And, uh, and you can steal those, and it's not illegal. You can take those home with you if you do not have one um, at home. How's everybody this morning? Good? Suntanned? Anybody burnt from yesterday? Not yet. Tomorrow, right? Let me pray for us, and we'll get started. God, there are times that we completely lose perspective on how um, privileged we are to have your written word. You could have just as easily left yourself silent and in sense left us in chaos as to trying to figure out who you are because it is virtually impossible to go through life without even the consideration that there is a God. And so God, we praise you for giving us your word. I pray this morning that you would open it up and help us to understand that this truly is your word. God, help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see for the ultimate goal of making your name great here and around the world and for the transformation of lives so that we can see Christ high and lifted up. God, I pray that we would begin to see the Bible not as a long series of text, but that we'd we'd see the Bible as you coming to spend time with us. It's you writing letters to us. Help us to see you. Jesus, thank you for access to your Father. We praise you. Amen. All right, we're going to be in 2 Timothy 3, if you want to go ahead and get there. 2 Timothy is in the New Testament, second part of the Bible, close to the very end. Uh, If you've gotten to Hebrews, you've gone a little too far, go back to the left, and that's where we're going to be, so you can go ahead and get a head start there. I'd like to say also, for those of you who are in some way impacted uh, in serving our country, either you directly, family member, thank you uh, very much, and Michael, thank you for making me ball like a baby in the back. playing that video. And if you weren't crying, I don't know that you've got a pulse uh, after that. So here's a couple of challenges we've got this morning. Challenge number one is we're trying to teach on the Bible, which ultimately we're going to make the case is the ultimate standard of truth, in a culture where we try to get our truth from Oprah, you two, Deepak Chopra, uh, whoever that is, and, and we've got all of these elements. Joel Osteen, he tried that. We've got all of these people trying to tell us what truth is. And we get caught up in a relentless pursuit of this because our soul wants to know what the ultimate standard of truth is. And so we've got the Bible here, and then we've got all of this other stuff and minutia that's around there. And so we're going to try and cut through that a little bit and get right to the text. The second challenge, which I deem as an opportunity, is we've got all the kids with us this morning, which I think is going to be a blast. Um, we're going to have fun. And so let me talk about the goals of what we want to get accomplished this morning. The first thing 
The first goal that we've got is, and Michael's talked about this for the last couple of weeks. Remember, two weeks ago we talked about baptism, had an awesome morning. Last, last week uh, we talked about the, kind of the security, salvation, and all of these questions swirling around that. And this week we're going to talk about the authority of the Bible. Why are we doing this? Go back to Ephesians 4, and in your own time, please read that. We desperately want to have unity among the church. Not only this church, but among the church worldwide. We want to have unity. And so we need to spend time talking about these things. The second goal of what we want to do is we want to be able to see this word as authoritative and fully powerful. And the third goal is we want to be able to see Christ through the Bible. That's ultimately what I want to bring us back to, is that the Bible, again, like I said earlier, is not a series of texts, but it's actually opening up a window for us in order to be able to see Christ. So here's a shout out to all the kids. We got a little video for you from an old school Bible story looking at Jesus and cartoon character, and I want us to be able to see what a cartoon can teach us about the Bible and about Christ. Jesus' followers could hardly believe it. We have seen the Lord. They were full of joy, but they were not full of understanding. They could see Jesus with their eyes, but they could not see why he had to die and rise again. And so, Jesus opened up God's holy book that had been written long ago, and he started with the books of Moses, and then the prophets and the Psalms. He showed them everything that was written, and it was written about him. In it were many word pictures that proved he must die to pay the penalty for sin. In it were many pictures that promised that he would rise again. Jesus' followers were amazed as they listened and as they read. Before they had said, we have seen the Lord, but now they could read God's holy book and say, even here, especially here, we have seen the Lord. Jesus taught them carefully because he knew the day was coming when people would no longer see him with their eyes. They would read of him instead. He knew God's holy book would help others to believe and say, we have seen the Lord, and they too, they would be full of joy. Do you see the Lord? Painted on the pages of Israel's hard and happy history is the big picture of God's forever king. So this cartoon story makes the case that the Bible is actually there to help point us to who Christ is and to help us to see the Lord. And so that's what I want us to see this morning. Here's how we'll start this out. It's just a quick overview of the Bible. There's two distinct buckets you can look at the authority and the power of the Bible through. One of the buckets is through the kind of historical reliability. Through history, has this Bible proved to be reliable? Now, that, that lens that we can look through has all sorts of data and, and detail and just reams of paper uh, and historical authenticity, and it's good. Here's the problem with it. We could go on and on and on for days about it, and you'd still not be convinced of the authority of the power of the Bible. The other perspective that we can look at the Bible in is the perspective of the Bible itself. What does the Bible have to tell us? What do people of the Bible have to tell us about the Bible? And what does Christ have to tell us about the Bible? We're going to spend the majority of our time there. We're going to spend about three minutes on the historical part of it, the digits and data and detail and all that stuff. Here's the other thing that we've done. Come Tuesday, the same place that you can get this podcast, and you can get it every week online, uh, you can also get, we've put a kind of an ebook thing together that we'll have up online, and it's got all of that history and manuscripts and all that stuff. If you want to study this further from a historical perspective, and that's a good thing, then take some time this week to go do that, and we'll have all that information for you up online. But here's what the Bible is. The Bible is a very simple story. In fact, I had a friend who told me one time that the Bible is shallow enough for kids to play in and deep enough for theologians to swim in and never touch the bottom. 
And I thought that was a good picture. Here's the story of the Bible in its smallest form. God's love, our sin and rejection, God's mediation coming to pay for our sin and rejection, and our soul's redemption. That's the story of the Bible. Heard another person put it this way. The Bible is a story, 66 books long, written by over 40 authors over a period of 2,000 years, and it tells one story. It's true. So let's look at the historical perspective really, really quickly. If you look at the Old Testament, again, I said Bible's made up of two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament has about 39 books in it. The New Testament, 27 books. Now, the 39 books of the Old Testament, how do we know that those are reliable and true? Who picked that out? Well, starting from Moses in his writings, actually in Deuteronomy 31, you see where Moses declared, hey, these writings, Ten Commandments, all these other things that I've done, store them in the Ark of the Covenant, which was kind of the presence of the Lord at that time, and keep these for your awareness. And that's in Deuteronomy 31 if you want to write it down and look it up later. And so we've got those writings. We've got the writings of Samuel, of Isaiah, of Jeremiah, and of all the prophets up to Malachi. And finally, in what's dated to believe to be about 435 B.C., it stopped. And it's as if God had spoken 1,500 years, and then all of a sudden, silence. Now, you had other books that were written. In fact, if you come from a Catholic background, your Bible may have in it what's called the Apocrypha. These are mysterious writings is what they're declared as. But, and we believe as a church that those are not the authoritative word of God. We believe that the 66 books of the Bible that we're going to talk about this morning. But, those apocryphal writings were helpful in understanding context of the Bible. And they also give us a perspective and insight. Because the question is, what happened from 435 B.C. until Jesus came? And so that's where the apocrypha helps us out. in Just understanding historically what that looks like. But we don't believe that they are in the inspired word of God. Okay? And so you have that as the Old Testament. How do we know that that was reliable? Well, that's what Jesus and all the disciples referenced constantly. And that's what Jews would look back to as their Torah, the law, and the law of the prophets. And so you had these books that the church preserved throughout history. And then all of a sudden, Jesus came. And then you had apostles start writing letters to other people. Well, those letters, the church believed, were the inspired word of God. Because they gave us unique insight and perspective on Jesus. And along about the end of the 200s, about 267, there were a group of churches that got together, the Eastern Mediterranean churches. And in a letter to Athanasius, the 39th, I don't know what happened in the first 1 through 38, but the 39th letter to Athanasius, you had these Eastern churches get together and put their stamp of approval on the 27 books and letters of the New Testament, all of which were written by apostles except a couple. And then 30 years later, 297, you had the Council of Carthage. So you had all the Eastern Mediterranean churches. The Council of Carthage was all the Western Mediterranean churches. They got together, put their stamp of approval, and affirmed what the earlier group had affirmed. And so by the end, by 300 AD, we had what we call canon, or our Bible, or the 66 books that you have in this Bible. Now again, if you want to study more historical stuff on that, please go online this week and download that ebook, and I think it will help you out. But here's the thing. Here's what we're going to look at. Because you can believe all that. There's creeds, there's statements, there's writings, there's liturgical traditions, oral traditions, reformations. All this stuff has happened since the Bible has been written. And yet, you lose your job. You go through a divorce. You get married. You have kids. You lose kids. You, you beat cancer. And frankly, you don't care what the creeds say. You don't care what the historical writings say. You don't care what some random guy from the 800s said about the Bible. All you want to do is you want God to sit across the 
the uh, dining room table from you, and you want his words to begin to exhale out of his mouth so you can understand what does God say. In fact, I dare say that Michael probably spends a lot of his time in counseling. The thing he's counseling is the thing that we're wondering is what does God say about my situation? And I want to encourage us to go back to the Bible to figure that out. Because he can begin to speak his words into our ears. And these are the words that teach and correct and train and reproof and put us down and pick us up all at the same time. And they're all found in God's words. So historically, we could go through reams of data. But what we're going to do for the rest of our time is we're going to look at the authority of the Bible through three different lenses. One is the personal lens of the life of Timothy. Okay, There are two letters that we have in the New Testament to a, a, a guy named Timothy. And they're written by Paul to his, who he called his child in faith, Timothy. And we're going to look at the life of Timothy. The second thing that we're going to look at is we're actually going to see what the Bible says about itself. And then the third thing is we're going to look at the authority and the power of the Bible through the life of Christ. So let me give you some context on this letter. Go ahead and get to 2 Timothy if you're not there. Go ahead and crack your Bibles open. Now this is a letter written from Paul to Timothy. Where was Paul? He was in prison. Now we say a lot that Paul was in prison. Paul was in prison. You ever been in prison? I haven't. And there's a reason I haven't. It's because I don't want to be there. I've known people who have spent time in prison. They didn't want to be there, and they don't want to go back. Prison's tough. It's ugly. It's dark. And that's in our modern-day context. Can you imagine what ancient prisons were like? I get to see prisons and what they look like over in Nigeria. Trust me, you don't want to be in prison. And my guess is the prison that Paul was in was much more like the prisons that are over in Africa than the prisons that our folks go to here in America. And so Paul was in prison, and he had to get a letter to his child in the faith, his disciple, Timothy. And so he starts writing this letter. And there's three main themes of this letter. The first thing he says in chapter 1 is he says in uh, Timothy, he says, endure in ministry. Why? Talk to anybody who's in ministry, full-time vocationally or as a part of their everyday life, whatever it looks like, talk to anybody who is active in ministry and ask him if it's easy. It's not. And so Paul's encouraging Timothy, endure, push on, press on. You've got to keep going. Do not stop. And in chapter 2, he comes clean and he says, listen, Timothy, all around you there's going to be these false teachers, these people that are saying part of what we believe is true and what is godly, and then they're going to be infusing that with their own opinion. Beware of those folks. Run away from those folks. Use the Bible to reproof and correct those folks and to correct the the record. But you've got to stop that. And you've got to beware of it. And then we get to chapter 3. And this is where Paul really unloads with the power and authority of the Bible. And that's where we're going to be. And what he says in verse 14 through 16 is to continue. So let me read that. Verse 14, 2 Timothy chapter 3. But as for you, continue in what you have learned. And have become convinced of because you know those from who you learned it, namely me and your mom and your grandmother. We'll talk about it in a minute. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Why? Look at verse 17. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we're going to look at this through the lens of Timothy's life. And what does that look like? 
in verse 14 or 15, it says, How from infancy you, Timothy, have known the Holy Scriptures. What does that mean? Well, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 5, you see that his mother and his grandmother, Eunice and Lois, they had actually begun to invest the Bible, the gospel, into Timothy's life from the time that he was a boy. And so all of a sudden, Timothy had this deposit that was made in his life, and it was a deposit of the gospel. That's literally what this word means, is the investment or deposit of the gospel has been placed into his life. So Timothy has the word from infancy. If you look back at 1 Timothy 6.20, you'll see that word. Let me read that to you. First Timothy 6.20, O Timothy, guard what was deposited in your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely known as knowledge. Second Timothy 1.5, I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother and in your mother. Now, I want to take a little aside here, okay? This is very important. I'm going to talk to parents and grandparents for a second. Kids, don't check out yet. I'm coming to you in just a second. But I'm going to talk to kids, uh, parents and grandparents for a second. We see that for Timothy, the Bible and the gospel is deposited and invested in his heart from infancy, from a child, which then set him up to be mentored by this, one of the ultimate apostles, Paul. Parents and grandparents, it is your responsibility, and it's my responsibility as a parent, not a grandparent yet, it is my responsibility to take this Bible and to invest it in the heart of my kids. Conversely, it is not the responsibility of this church to take this Bible and to invest it in the hearts of your kids. It is the church's, our responsibility to support and to encourage and come alongside of you to take the Bible and the gospel and invest it in the heart of your kids. The Bible was never meant to be outsourced to the church. The church was never meant to be a factory to be outsourced to of the Bible to put it in your kids. That is our responsibility, but let me also say it's our privilege to be able to do that. So whatever it is of the Bible that your children have by the age of 10, 15, 20, that's not the church's fault or honor, that is your fault or honor. And it is a weighty responsibility. One other thing for parents and grandparents. And by the way, I'm not just talking to parents. I am talking to grandparents too. When you get retired and you get to an aged point of your life, your responsibility does not end. In fact, I would say it would ramp up even more with this opportunity and privilege to be able to invest in the heart of your kids. But here's the other practical thing to invest. Not that the Bible's not practical, but there is a tool and a skill that we have got to become better in that, and that's reading. Now, I am sorry to all the teachers of history, mathematics, science, uh, psychology, anthropology. If you are a teacher of one of those things, thank you for doing that. But if a kid couldn't read, they don't get any of that stuff. And so we as parents and grandparents need to be teaching and training our children in the joy of reading, in the joy of getting more of whatever is being written about, and in this case, getting more of the Bible. So I want to challenge us in that. Don't run away from that, but I want to challenge you in that. Children, coming to you, kids, from zero to whatever, ask your parents for the Bible. Ask them to read you the Bible. Now, I know that a lot of you can probably read as kids, some of you are thinking, this is a pretty literate society. Do you have any idea where you're at? Yes, I do. And that's why I'm saying we've got to become even more proficient because we've been given the tools to do this. We need to create a passion around this. So children, go to your parents and ask them for the Bible. 
ask your parents to read you the Bible, and then ask them questions about it. And at some point, your parents are going to go, I don't know. And then you get to go on a journey together to find the answer. You get to walk through the Bible together. Timothy had the investment in the deposit of the Bible and of the gospel. He also had the investment of a mentor, Paul. Now, we don't all get Paul's. Timothy got a pretty good one. We don't always get these guys. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says to Timothy, you know all about my teaching and my way of life and my purpose and my faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, and sufferings. You know what it was like in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. In fact, I endured it all, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Everyone, look at verse 12, who wishes to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I don't have time to take that aside, but that's a big one. That's a deep one. In fact, I would encourage you to spend some time on that one. Verse 12, this is so contrary to what we believe as a society. But everybody who wishes to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul begins to pour himself into Timothy. Mentoring is such a crucial part of what we do in the spiritual life. I've had mentors in my life. Uh, the, the, the passion that I have for teaching and training and developing and seeing the transformation of other people, that came from my dad being able to uh, work in so many circles and talk to so many people in so many different circles. And it also came from a man named Adrian Dupree who deposited that passion inside of me. It's from mentors that God used. Uh, as a family, we've got a passion for global engagement and local engagement. That was invested to us by two guys, Mike Barnett and Bob Roberts. You don't know their name, but I want you to know that I know their name. They're important to me. They invested in me, and they invested the gospel in me. So from very early on, the faith of his mother and his grandmother alongside the knowledge and the wisdom that Paul imparted to him equipped him for the business of every good work. That was Timothy's business, was to do good works and to live out the gospel among the people. So what was the result? If this was the investment, the deposit, we want to know what the return on that investment was. All you bankers in their house are asking about ROI right now. So what was the result? If you look back, I think it's a chapter before, Paul tells Timothy that he has a sincere faith. And that word sincere literally means without hypocrisy. He is not an actor in his faith. He doesn't get up on one day and act faithful and then go out the rest of the day when nobody is looking and act unfaithful. Paul says he has a very sincere faith, a non-hypocritical faith. That's a product of the investment and the deposit of God's Word. Also, he is a spiritual leader in Ephesus. We read all about that. That's one of the reasons Paul was writing to him, was to endure in ministry is because he was a spiritual leader in Ephesus. And then he gets the ultimate uh, compliment in in the first letter to Timothy, chapter 6, verse 11, where Paul, this super apostle, calls his student a man of God. Now, could you imagine, those of you who have mentors that you look up to, you don't idolize them, but you look up to them, one day for them to call you a man or a woman of God. And that's what Paul called Timothy. And that was the result of the deposit and the investment of the Bible. And so when the Bible is invested in our hearts, especially from an early age, but what if you didn't get it early on? It doesn't matter. It's invested right now. Just because you didn't start investing money at 10 doesn't mean you shouldn't start at 40. Invest it now. And when that Bible is invested, it transforms the heart from the person looking at his own heart, wanting to fill his own heart, where the person begins to look across the table at God and says, God, give me your heart. And the way that I'm going to get your heart is through your word, because that's where you've talked to me about your heart. 
And then that deposit begins to transform our heart and your heart. So the transformation in the life of Timothy is proof of the authority and the power of the Bible. Proof number two, let's look at the self-testimony of the Bible. If you look at verse 16, Paul says that all Scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training. We've got a misconception that the Bible and the church is here just to make us feel good, and it's not. It's here to make us look like Christ. It's here to trim. There are times that you get patted on the back, and then there are times that you get spanked on the bottom. That's what the Bible's there for. Why? Verse 17, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There is a great purpose for the investment of the Bible, for the teaching and the training and the correction and the rebuke of the Bible. When somebody who knows God's Word and lives God's Word, when they reproof you or correct you, you need to praise God because you're being trained up to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, when it says in verse 16 that all Scripture is God-breathed, that literally means that it has been breathed into by God. Not that God dictated word for word, but that the person who was writing the Bible had been breathed into by God. Look at what Peter says, 2 Peter 1, 20-21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now this phrase has an imagery to it, okay? And we live on the coast, so we can kind of get this imagery, especially if you are into sailing, if you have a sailboat. The imagery here is that there's a boat on the water, and there's a sail that's been hoisted, and the wind just takes the boat. Now, here's the problem. Most of our sailboats have a rudder. In our life, we equate that to a bias or to an opinion. So, God, you can blow your wind through my sail, but I'm going to steer the ship. And this imagery here is no. This boat has no rudder. This boat only has a sail, and wherever the wind blows it, that's where the boat goes. And so when these guys who were writing this scripture, when they heard from God, they weren't using their bias or opinion, they were using the very words of God being blown through the sails of their life, and they wrote down what was inspired or breathed into by God. That's the imagery. And so that we can believe, and we believe this as a church, that this Bible does not have error. We believe this is God's word. The human authors spoke, and I'm going to give you another imagery that some of us may know too much, but spoke of the, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. A couple of weeks ago, I, I was with uh, a group of people, but there was one particular guy who had been drinking a little too much. In fact, way too much. And this was a guy that I know, and I've seen him when he's not drinking way too much, and I saw him in a context where he had drank too much. And so when I was with this guy when he didn't drink too much, I know how he talks, I know how he acts, I know his demeanor, I know his personality, and when he had drank too much and was under the influence of the alcohol that was in his body, his words were different, his demeanor was different, everything about him was different. These writers were under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And so the words that came out were God's words. They were not their own. They may have been in their accent, in their style, and their twang, but they were not their own words. So here's the thing, when you learn this, don't be alarmed if your heart leaps at the reality that God's words are here on a page for you to read. We've actually got access to the God who created us and to understand insight about who He is. That's thrilling. Can you imagine if God was silent, how frustrating that would be? 
But instead, we get frustrated and forget that God's given us his words right here, and sometimes we don't go to it. Here's the reality. Our souls are on a constant quest for absolute truth, for a truth that we can stand by, for a truth that when we hear all of these different impulses from everywhere around the world, we question them. Is that, is that true? So when a politician tells us something, we question, is that true? When a business owner tells us something, we question, is that true? If you don't have the, if you don't have the Bible, how do you know? And not that the Bible is going to address specifically what the politician or the business owner or the nonprofit leader said, but it gives you principles and understanding as to who God is and how we respond to those sorts of things. Our soul is in a constant quest for truth. The problem is we fill our soul a lot with half-truths and, and wish they were truths. And when we read it, we go, man, that tickles my ears. That sounds great. And then you consume it. You realize it absolutely had no spiritual value. Whereas the Bible has ultimate spiritual value. When you take and consume and invest the Bible, you start to read John 17, 17, and Jesus said, wash them with your truth. Your word is truth. And then all of a sudden, this search that you have, and you're going through the self-help section and the bookstore, it begins to slow down and eventually stops because you realize that you've got God's word right here. Now, you may like to see what other people say about God's word. That's good. But you understand that your standard for ultimate truth is stop, and you go on for a new search, and you're starting to search inside the Bible. In fact, you realize in Psalm 119, verse 105, I think it is, that the Bible becomes a, a lamp unto your feet and a life unto your path. When we go to Nigeria at night, sometimes the moon's shining, sometimes it's not. Sometimes we hear things that kind of freak us out, and actually all the time we do. And sometimes at night you have to leave the camp, for reasons. And so you leave the camp and there's just figures like monsters and everything that you just see out there. And so periodically I'll try to be a, a big boy and go out there without a light and just walk and hear crunching and everything else. And it's not until I turn the light on that what you start to see is you see these paths that just trail off into the bush. And these are paths that the Fulani have been using to get from camp to camp to camp. And the imagery is perfect because when I don't use the light, I can't see the path. But when I use the light, I see the path, but I only see it to a point, so I just have to keep walking and see where it leads. And that's what the Bible is, and that's this new search that you're on. 2 Peter 1.19 says that we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light that is shining in a dark place, and it lights up your soul and your heart. And so all of a sudden, this Bible, this word becomes your light to be able to uncover more about who God is and to see the path. So you're searching with this new light. Here's the problem, though. With the new light, you're not only going to see good things about God, but you're going to see kind of wretched things about yourself. And so you begin to grieve over the sin that's in your heart. So when you begin to follow Christ, all of a sudden, maybe it's not as euphoric as you thought it was going to be because you've got this new light in the Bible that's uncovering the good and the bad. And you're grieving over sin and you're rejoicing over redemption with your new life, and you get to Psalm 119, and in verse 9, you see that the Bible cleanses your, way, cleanses your way, in verse 11, it keeps you from sin, in verse 16, it gives us delight, in verse 26, it provides us with counsel, in verse 25, it revives our soul, and then you get to verse 103 in Psalm 119, and the more you begin to, you begin to get God's word, the more you taste and see that God is good, and you declare with the psalmist in 103 that the Bible is sweeter than honey. And it becomes sweet to you. 
Now, some of you are questioning this and you're thinking, the Bible's boring and it's mundane. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. I've been reading through 2 Samuel lately. Boys, especially, read through it, man. You want to talk about blood and guts. It is all throughout the Bible. The Bible is not this boring little document that doesn't work. The Bible is a, is a document, is, is God's words that I could sit down with my boys who draw swords, yeah, yeah, all day long, and they get to see the warrior God. My daughter gets to see the loving Christ sitting down with the woman at the well. The Bible's all over the place. It's not boring. We're boring. Until we get more of God's word. This truth has been written by men who are carried along under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now it comes in two forms. The Word of God, which we have. And then it also comes in the life of Christ. Now I want you to get this imagery. So I'm going to need you to turn on every bit of right brain you can turn on right now. Okay? So for those of you who are very left brain and all you want to do is work on a calculator all day, I'm going to have to ask you to switch. You're going to have to go right brain with me. Turn the calculator off and let's start thinking pictures. All of a sudden, the Word becomes alive in Jesus. John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh. Now, most of us have heard that a ton, but I want you to hear the imagery. The Word literally means skin. The Word, this Bible, it became skin. And so now all of a sudden, it's as if the Bible comes in the form of Jesus, and Jesus is the arms and the legs and the ears and the eyes and the hair of the Bible. And so we read the Bible and we're wondering, what does this look like? To be, who can live this out? And the Word became flesh and pitched its tent among us and it dwelt among us and it spent time with us. And so we get to see the Bible. If you want to know what the Bible looks like when it's actually lived out in the life of a human being... Then you look at Jesus, the forever king that we talked about, who considered himself nothing, taking the very nature of a certain servant. He humbled himself and became one of us, and it became skin. It became skin. And this Bible all of a sudden had tears, had blood, had emotion, had words, had movement, and it had power. And at that moment, we begin to see the authority and the power of this Bible because we see it lived out in front of us. The Bible is only without error in as much as Jesus is without error because the Word became flesh and His name is Jesus. And so we saw it lived out. At the moment Jesus has error and has sin, the authority and the power of this Bible is lost and it's gone. But Jesus never did. And so the power and the authority of the Bible are here. So here's the final thing. If you do not believe in the Bible, it's not a historical reliability problem that you have. If you do not believe that the Bible is true, it's not because there's not enough documents and preservation in historical antiquity to prove that it's true. That's not the problem. The problem you have is a faith problem. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. And without faith, it is impossible to have the gift of Christ. And without faith, it is impossible to have life. And all that from the Bible when it became flesh. Therefore, God's Word has ultimate authority. It's 66 books written by over 40 authors over a period of 2,000 years. 
it impacts you right now. Let it be your standard. Let God's word be your standard. And may you go hard after God's word. And may you be disciplined to go after God's word. Sacrificing other things so that you can get more of God's word. May you be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And may you one day confirm that God's word indeed restores your soul and is sweeter than honey and points you to the forever king. So here's what I want you to do with this. We're going to do some communion time. We've got it up here. The Bible says to examine our hearts when it comes to communion. That's why we have it. Jesus said, take this bread, break it, and eat it, and remember me. Well, when we remember Jesus, we remember the Word because the Word is Jesus, His skin. And so during your time of communion this morning, I want you to remember Christ and reflect and thank Him for the truth and the words that He's given us. And then we're going to have a time where we can give. And uh, we say it every week, but if you're visiting with us, please don't feel obligated. Um, Jump in if you want to. But everybody else, this is our time to give as a church. Let me pray for us. And let's pray this week that the Bible is not a Sunday morning thing for you or your children, but is a lifelong passion to find the forever King. God, we love you. We're honored that you love us. And in the same way, we love to go check the mailbox to see if there's a letter from me. Not a letter from the bank, not a letter from the gas company, but a letter from my friend or my dad or my mom or my grandmother to me. And there's really no reason. It's not birthday, it's not anniversary, it's just a letter to me because they were thinking about me. This is a letter that you've given to us, not because it was our birthday, but because you were thinking about us. God, during our communion, I pray that we'll reflect on that. And at the end of our time, that you will be praised for your availability to us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.